Alrighty. <coughs> well, I have um, an underlying cough still from being sick back in December 12th. That's how long ago it was. And our contemporary worship leaders, our volunteer worship leaders, are both on vacation. How dare they? Like we don't pay enough. Um, they're volunteering, get it? <laughs> so so um, we'll see how this goes because I feel like I'm gonna cough the whole way through. But anyways, it's fine, it's fine. Everything's good, it's all sunny in Florida. All right, welcome to our church. We're going to look at Acts chapter seven today. We're gonna spend a lot of time in Acts chapter seven and I'm going to uh, hope to rise to the challenge of going through this entire chapter of 64 verses today. So we're going to try to do that. Uh, and the reason being, you'll see why, and the reason being is that a lot of what we're going to see in chapter 7 is Stephen's um, kind of defense in front of the court, in front of the Sanhedrin. And he really kind of takes them through the Old Testament in a very deep way. And to take the time to go through each of those pieces would be, uh, it's more of a Sunday school class than it is necessarily here on a Sunday morning. But I want to pull out some of that stuff from verses 1 to 54 for you all because it is important and it's all leading up to what Stephen is, is doing and, and what the message is for us today. So before jumping into that, uh, how many of you uh, have ever read the book, The Lord of the Flies? Raise your hand. Lord of the Flies. Okay? So Lord, not Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Flies. So I was an English teacher. I taught 11th grade English. I didn't get a chance to teach this book and I was really bummed out because uh, I never understood this book, Lord of the Flies, as a kid. It's usually taught in the ninth, tenth grade English year, and it is a very, um, it's a very violent book. It is a book about uh, a group of boys who uh, uh, their plane crashes and they're marooned on an island with no adults. And it's the whole idea that if you remove the moral compass, if you remove the boundaries, if you remove the people who say don't do that, do this, and the rules, what would happen? How would, how would they survive? How would they, what, what would they create? And, it's a, and it's, based, it's a commentary on the inner beast that lies within each and every one of us. Uh, and it's, it has Christian themes to it, but not necessarily an allegory for Christianity. But it really kind of highlights what happens when you don't have that moral common, you don't have those boundaries, and how you give in to this internal beast inside of you. Now, like I said, I read it in ninth, tenth grade, and, and if you want to talk about the eternal beast inside, this, my English class, we were a bunch of little beasts. And the thing is, is that the teacher, uh, I won't give her name, I don't want to embarrass her, but sweet, lovely teacher that I now realize as an adult, but as a ninth, tenth grade beast, I did not. And she had a nose that kind of lifted up, and so you kind of had a full size of the nostrils. And, and there's a character in this book called uh, Piggy. And we as, oh yeah, I know, I know, listen, I'm confessing, don't judge me for my past. But anyway, we as students latched on to that and, and definitely gave her that nickname and, and it was really, really bad. And so that was my experience with Lord of the Flies when I first read it. But in college, now becoming an English teacher by God's twisted sense of humor, uh, I began to read it and, under, and, and value what was in here because it is so profound. And it's a good lesson for us all. And it kind of connects to what we're going to see here with Stephen. You see that on the island, the boys devolve and they imagine that a beast, a real beast, lives on the island. There's a parachuter that 
uh, was trying to rescue them and ended up getting caught in the trees and dies. And they feel like the shadow that they're seeing is, is a beast. But as they slowly progress into more and more chaos, they begin to become blind to their rage of getting this and killing this animal. And in so doing, they kill this character named Simon, who is kind of like the Christ-like figure of the book. He's the only one that's giving out sound wisdom and sound uh, logic. He is the one that discovered that the thing that they were afraid of was a parachute man and not some evil beast. And when he comes back to the camp to, to say that to them, they don't see him, they just see the beast and they kill him. And, it, and at that point, you are to see what happens when we as a, as a human give in to that carnal, that inside evil within us all. Now, we know as Christians, there is a hell and there is Satan, there is a devil. It's not to say that it's just the beast within us. There is a bad place that you go to if you don't proclaim Jesus as your Savior. But we also know that the fall of man, when we gave in to that deceptor and we became our own little lords of our own little lives, we invited the beast to, to reside within us. And we carry that all the way through until, until death. It's always there. It's always a capability. It's always a possibility that we, even the most righteous of us in this room, myself included, are capable of doing ugly, heinous things to ourselves, to others, in sight of God, consequences, you know, be darned. You just have to turn on the TV to see it, right? I'm not speaking anything we don't know. You turn on the TV, you watch the news, and you see crazy people taking guns and shooting up places where guns are not there. Schools, children, uh, people cutting each other down because of race. People cutting each other down because they look different, they sound different, they do different things. That's the inner beast. And when you let that have control, it's chaos. And the devil, I think, laughs. Like, think. He's like, see? There you are. But not so with Christ, and not so for us who profess a faith in Christ. That even though we may profess a faith in Jesus the Lord and have received his grace and freedom from the beast, it still lies within, and we have to be aware of that. And Stephen becomes aware of that. So now Stephen, we heard in chapter 6, he was minding his own business, and then the apostles called up seven people full of wisdom and spirit and said, you, we have a task for you to do. And, 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 and you're going to carry out the charitable arm of the church. Stephen's like, got it, love Jesus, want to do this. And on his going and working, he becomes more and more active in sharing the gospel of Jesus, so much so that he begins performing signs and wonders that was only listed as the apostles doing up until this point. So he's starting a ruckus. He's starting, he's continuing the movement of Peter and John and the apostles at the Sanhedrin, the court, wanted to stop. Remember, they said to them, just stop doing what you're doing, please. We'll beat you up. Stop doing it. Okay, thanks. And of course, the movement just continues to explode and go. And here comes Stephen, faithfully serving, faithfully preaching, and the Sanhedrin, the court, they don't like it. And so instead of listening to his message, this is all reviewed from last week, they come up with false witness because they can't put an argument together to pin, you know, tear down his logic. They didn't have an argument that could withstand what he had to say because he's full of spirit and full of wisdom. So they come up with false things. 
They say, he doesn't know a ding-dong thing about Moses. And he says, this Jesus guy is going to tear down the temple. The temple, everyone, the temple. He's going to tear down the temple. Oh my gosh, run scared. And so they gather him and bring him in front of the court with all of this false testimony for the only means, for the only purpose, to kill him for it, to shut him up. Why? Why? What is going on with the Sanhedrin? Why are they so bent on stopping this? And I, throughout the, our series, have given different possibilities. Today, I would say that they are consumed with fear. They are consumed with fear. When we give in to the beast and we start living in that sin and, and not really listening to the Holy Spirit within us, it's because we're afraid. It's because we're jealous. It's because we have some sort of self-preserving thing that we want to make sure that we're okay. The Sanhedrin have now heard Jesus Christ give testimony to himself. The Sanhedrin has now heard Peter and John give testimony to seeing the risen Lord and the power of, of who he is and saying, this is the Christ whom you killed. Repent, baptize, and receive the Holy Spirit. There's still time. And now they are seeing and hearing this thing from Stephen that they can't even stop. You have to wonder if they're beginning to think, maybe, just maybe, what they're saying is correct. Because it's steeped in our history and our heritage. It's steeped in our theology, and it kind of makes sense if we think about it. But if that's the case, if they're correct, the Sanhedrin have got to be thinking this. If they're correct, that means we're wrong. And we have to come to terms with the fact that we did kill the Messiah and that we are actively trying to thwart the, the movements of God and we're on the wrong side of history now. They probably didn't think of this, but no one wants to grow up to be the Sanhedrin in the Bible, do you? Right? You want to be on the right side of history. You want to be on the winning team. I'll see football last night, Jacksonville Jaguars against the Chargers. The Chargers absolutely thought they were going to be Jesus. <laughs> Jacksonville came through. Jacksonville Jaguars, everybody. I'm from Florida, so. <laughs> it's been a hot minute since they've been in the Super Bowl, so it's been really, really exciting. Anyways, uh, but anyway, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. They're afraid, and so out of their fear, they're doing heinous, unrighteous things, and in their minds, they're thinking this is this is the most correct thing to do. We can lie about this guy because what he's saying is so blasphemous. So two wrongs will make a right. You see how their, their mind is just going into places that God would never have said that. Stephen's defense in front of the Sanhedrin reveals that Jesus is the real deal Christ. He satisfies the old covenant and establishes the new. And then accepting this and coming to terms with the beast within is not always easy and it might be scary. But the reward is unity with the Messiah and being on the right side of history. What we will see today is that there is a beast that resides in all of us and that Israel is not exempt. And that's probably the most dangerous thing that Stephen says. That is probably the thing that ends that brings him to the end of his life, is looking at these high priests, this court, and saying, you're not Israel. That's like me or somebody else coming up to you and giving you a laundry list of all the sins you've ever committed, and, and you're hearing it, and you're thinking, oh, dang, how did you know that? 
like you're convicted of, like, yeah, they know exactly what I did. And then they look at you and say, you're not of Christ. Right? Can you imagine the, 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 the feelings that would well up if someone said to you, you're not, you're, not, you're not Christian. Look at how you live and how you talk. You would be scared. You'd be angry. You might be convicted in some ways. And that's exactly what's going on here. And they have a choice. The Sanhedrin still have a choice. They can do the right thing, repent, and do exactly what Peter said. He, he laid it out for them. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. They can still do that, but they double down and instead operate from the beast within. Let's see. Let's, let's see what's going on here. Okay, so this is where we're going to go through 50-some verses, lickety-split. So we'll open up chapter 7, verses 1 through 50, and let's see the type of defense that Stephen is given before the Sanhedrin. Now remember, the Sanhedrin have gathered him, and they bear false witness against him, and they, uh, and, and, and they are seeing his face glow like that of an angel, meaning everything that he's about to say is coming from the authority of God himself. They don't quite understand that, but we need to see that, that everything he is saying is coming straight from God. And there is a difference in how Stephen approaches the Sanhedrin court and how Peter approaches the Sanhedrin court. See, Peter's, Peter's objective is in front of the court is to hold up Jesus and say, this is Christ. You killed him, but you can still repent. And he brings some Old Testament stuff in, prophecies and such, but it's only to point to the identity of Jesus. Stephen's is different. Stephen's defense is not so much a here's the real deal Jesus, though it's a part of it. Hear and see what his real drive is. So they get him together. They say, hey, is this true? Are you speaking blasphemous things against the temple? Are you bearing false witness against Moses? Are you doing all these things? He says no, and then they all leave. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, he gets them in there, and he says this. He says, verse, verse 2 from chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, hear me. Now that is, that is profound right there. Uh, Peter, when he's in front of the Sanhedrin, he says, men of Israel. But Stephen, Stephen wants him to come in a little bit further, and he says, brothers and fathers, my family, my kinsmen, Israel, come in and hear what I have to say. And then he starts from the very beginning of their Old Testament covenant theology. You see, what Stephen's going to do is he's going to bring up these covenant heads, these people in whom God worked through to push the redemption story along, beginning with Abraham first. And by beginning with Abraham first, he's saying to them, oh no, I'm not bearing false witness. I'm digging deep into our history and I'm going to show this to you for a reason. It says, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. He is 
In Old Testament times, I forgot to say this at the other service, so you're getting a better one. In Old Testament times, there is, whenever they want to reestablish the covenant with another person, with God, there is a recounting, there is a preamble, there is a let's go over the history of everything that God has done for us to remind us just how great he is. This is what he's doing. He's reminding the Sanhedrin everything that God has done for them. And then in so doing, will remind them of all the things that they did against him. You see, it's not a defense for his life. And it's not necessarily, here's Jesus. It's, Israel, look in the mirror. You have a problem with when God intervenes and wants to move the redemption story along. You consistently reject him. So look, so he starts with Abraham. Scott spoke to the verse six to this effect. Offspring will be sojourners in the land belonging to others and would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. He's just going through history. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And then here it is. This is the covenant. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob and the 12 patriarchs. Now I know that there are people in this room, I won't name who that person is, who hates when I say the word circumcision. But it's very, very important. See, it's bringing it up here. That Stephen is bringing it up here. He is saying that at the start of the covenant, the sign that says that you are in this relationship with God is circumcision. It's very important. All of Israel kind of stake their claim on that. They sit on that as like, this is, this is the most important. And so he says that this is what they did. And then he issues all of the other heads of the, of the covenant. His son Isaac, who then gave birth to Jacob, and then Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. Now, if you don't know who they are, those are the 12 sons. And one of those sons was Joseph. Does everyone remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph with all the multicolor coat. They did a whole Broadway show out of that. Technicolor dream coat. Yeah, okay. Now, he brings Joseph in on purpose. And he explains, and I'm not going to read through it here. But this is where he starts with, this is what God has done, and then now shows the Sanhedrin the rejection of people who are favored by God. You see, the brothers of Joseph didn't like him, so they sold him, got rid of him. And then God stoops down and he takes Joseph and he raises him up, brings him to Egypt. He kind of helps have dreams with Pharaoh and interprets them and becomes a real, real deal person. So much so that when he had a dream of a famine, he rightfully had Egypt collect all and, and store up all this food so that they could hand it out to the kingdom when they got hungry. And lo and behold, his 11 brothers and his dad came to Egypt and said, we're hungry. And there's Joseph, whom they sold in this righteous, powerful seat. But they initially rejected them because they were jealous. Remember, fear, jealousy, and self-preservation. Those are all beastly things. They sold them because they were jealous. So then Stephen moves out from that part of the history, and he continues on in chapter 7 and brings up Moses. And this is great. You almost have to laugh at this now because he's under trial 
for saying that Moses is wrong and Jesus is better than Moses. And, and they're saying, you don't know anything about Moses. And then he here gives, you'll have to read it for homework, he gives them a birth to death recounting of Moses. And in so doing, highlights what? Their rejection of him. Even before Moses had the Ten Commandments. So Moses' story. He was born in, uh, into a Jewish family at a time when a new pharaoh was in place who didn't know Israel or Joseph or anything else, and so they didn't like the Jews. Wanted everyone to kill their babies because they didn't, there were too many, all, all the things, whatever, what was going on there. Moses gets preserved, obviously by the hand of God. He puts her into the reeds, she puts him into the reeds, into the water, and then Pharaoh's daughter finds him, raises him as his own, so he gets both now Egyptian education with Jewish heritage, which makes him valuable to be able to speak to Pharaoh and to the Jews. And then what he sees one day is his fellow Jewish brothers being picked on by an Egyptian person. And he swings in there and ends it and kills this Egyptian person. So then Moses thinks, and this is Stephen saying all of this. This is all of, I'm just summarizing here. Stephen's saying all this in front of the Sanhedrin. And so then what Moses did is he went back to his brothers thinking that they would see him as a righteous hand of salvation. But they don't. They look at him and they say, now remember this is before the Ten Commandments. This is before the burning bush. They look at Moses and they say, who are you, Moses, to judge us? Rejection. And then Stephen brings him into Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments where Moses receives those Ten Commandments and is up there within the mountain and the people of Israel, after now being led out of Egypt by Moses through the Red Sea, has witnessed all of God can do, they get tired of waiting on him. And so they say to Aaron, hey, we're tired of waiting on Moses. Let's gather up all the gold and create a new God. What do you think about that? And Aaron says, sure. That sounds great. And so they put this calf together. And if you remember from last week, I said, God hands them over to idol worship, which is always deaf and blind and hearts closed off. It has no life. They become like the idol that they are worshiping. And so God's like, you want a golden calf? Sure. See how that works for you. But Stephen does all of this on purpose to show the Sanhedrin the habitual history of Israel rejecting God's agents of redemption. So therefore, it's not him on trial. He flips the court and he says, it's on you. It's on you. So what if I say something wrong about Moses? So what if I said that the temple is going to, to be destroyed and rebuilt again? God doesn't live in houses made by man. It doesn't matter. What you should be worried about is the fact that you have a history of rejecting and a deaf ear to the Lord. Look at what he says to them. He really turns up the heat in verse 51. After giving all of the, 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 the information... And the history, he says to them now, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. This is the statement that ends his life. Because he looks at the most righteous and says, you 
are not Israel. Now, if you remember, if you go to Romans and see Paul, this is all in front of him. Paul's hearing all of this. And when Paul becomes a Christian, he has this writing to the letter to the Romans, verses nine, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where he wrestles with the fate of Israel. And he comes to terms with the fact that maybe not all Israel is Israel, whether they were circumcised or not. That's just of the flesh. It's the heart that needs to be circumcised. It's the heart that needs to have God's hand on it. And here Stephen says to them, you stiff-necked people, meaning you, you can't move your neck, you can't bow, you can't turn and repent, you're stuck in your ways. Uncircumcised of heart, meaning you have no desire to hear from God whatsoever or be convicted, and you're not listening to the Holy Spirit whatsoever. You have become like that idol they made with Aaron. As your fathers did, so he brings up old history, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So now he comes back with Peter. Remember, the, the Christ who came, you killed him. You who have received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. The way that you keep the law is the Holy Spirit guiding you and leading you to it. And he's telling them right there, you have none of this stuff. Therefore, you are not Israel, and you are not a high court. I respond to somebody else. Now, you can imagine their response to that. They weren't exactly happy at this, as I said last week, coming into their cornflakes. And so when they heard these things, verse 54, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, which is the gnashing of teeth. And that is only reserved in the Bible for people who are wicked. So they gnash their teeth at this good news. They gnash their teeth at the, the news of Jesus. They gnash their teeth at him saying, you have, a, you have a habitual problem of saying no to God. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If you, would, if you have your Bible, circle that, because this is, we're going to take a little sidetrack here before he dies. This is our takeaway for today. You see, we can, we can be like the Sanhedrin and give totally in to the beast within. Do awful things to each other. Consequences be darned. Who cares? God says don't do it. I don't care. I want to do it. I'm going to press that gas pedal. All of us can do that. Even Stephen is not exempt from that. But Stephen, up until now, lived his life as a powerful witness. Look at the progression of Stephen. He is called into servanthood to just do ministry. And then from that, does ministry so boldly and courageously with the message that he preaches to people, he kind of becomes an apostle who's doing signs and wonders. He's got a message to say and tell. And then now here at his death, they're getting ready to stone him. They're getting ready to go to take him out. They're gnarling his teeth. And he looks up and he receives a prophecy. We've gone from servant, apostle, to prophecy. And what he sees, it falls in line with Scripture. 
Because Daniel saw it back in his prophecy. He said, I see the Son of Man coming from the heavens on the clouds. And one other person said it too, to the same court that Stephen's in front of. And that was Jesus Christ. Look quickly to Matthew 26, verse 63. I'll just read it. Jesus is in front of the same court. And the same high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, you said it so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And now Stephen in front of that same court says, wait, 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 wait. I see the Son of Man. Not sitting, but now standing which is also important because that means he's in the stance of judgment. Standing up there in the clouds of heaven. You would think that the Sanhedrin would be like, whoa, stop the record. Didn't the Messiah, didn't Jesus say this was going to happen, that this is how we would see him? But they don't. They, scriptures tell us in Acts 7, they speak louder. They yell louder so that they drown out his voice and that they can't hear the thing that would possibly stop the whole thing. They are totally driven by the beast within, by their fear, by their jealousy, and by their self-preservation. This movement is going to stop today, and we're going to do this poor soul in to make sure that that happens. But this poor soul is not fighting alone because the Son of Man is standing and watching and ready to receive him. So they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed over. They closed their ears off. They didn't want to hear it. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him and witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul who was kind of in charge of these proceedings. And as they were stoning Stephen... Stephen cries out and now truly unites with Christ in death. So he goes from servant to apostle to prophet and now martyr, just like with Christ, and says the very same words that Jesus said on the cross with one subtle difference. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, Father God, into your hands I commend my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when Jesus lifted up his head, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you have to see this parallel here. But the subtle difference is who did Jesus pray to? His Father in heaven, right? Stephen, in his dying breath, now boldly proclaims and gives witness and testimony to the true risen, resurrected Christ who is now united with his Father in glory and in power because he prays to the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, take my spirit. Lord Jesus, forgive them for what they are doing. And in that prayer for forgiveness is saying that God's forgiveness knows no boundaries and can even forgive these wicked people who are ending my life unjustly. You have to imagine that Saul, who's standing there watching all of this, some of that's got to get into his heart a little bit. 
because in just a few, few short chapters here, we're going to see Saul become Paul and really devote his life to Christ. But here at this moment, hearing this, this servant, this, this apostle, un unofficial, this prophet, this now martyr, say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How powerful is that? So what do you do with this information? What do, why? Stephen is in this Bible just like a blip. If you look at the entire whole Old Testament, New Testament, he gets like just a quick little 30-second shout-out here. But he is of the most utmost importance, for he gives us the example of how we are to live our lives even though the beast resides within us. That the more that we give into the fullness of the Spirit that resides in all of you who proclaim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the more you give that power and that volume, the beast stays contained. And we live as Christ lived and become more like the Plato that carriers mixing together. More and more like Christ until that day when the beast is completely defeated. And so as you leave here as with your bold witness, that's why every week I talk about bold witness, leave here a little humbled knowing that we're not that much different from the Sanhedrin. It's just one moment of weakness that can send us down a road that will take us further than we ever thought we'd ever go and on a road that we never thought we'd ever be on. But you have the Holy Spirit. You know who Christ is. And that Spirit dwells richly inside of you, convicting you of the truth of the gospel that you have received. Don't go the way of the Sanhedrin and be filled with such jealousy and fear that you get off course and begin worshiping a God that's really just an idol and not the Christ who came to save us all. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you for your tremendous blessings. I thank you for the story of Stephen to show us just how quickly uh, wickedness can take over. But you also remind us here that as Stephen looked up in the face of death, he sees you standing, ready to judge, ready to receive him, and we are reminded of what you said to the disciples, that not a hair on our head will be harmed. For everlasting life awaits us, we who witness to the bold truth of Jesus Christ. Let us live faithful lives because you live and now stand with your Father in heaven. To your name we pray, amen.